Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, planning for the future of work as your agency comes back to the office. The conversations right now I would have with our CFO, our CIO, and our acquisition organization is, is prepare for doing things a little bit differently. The shutdown countdown may finally be a moot point. We're on a continuing resolution through Friday, so that is their deadline. They may have to pass a short-term bill, give them a few more days, but I'm confident we're at the end game now and we are very close to those appropriations being finalized. And the push for BYOD at DOD. We are working really hard to enable folks to use their own personal devices. This is new. Uh, This is very, very new for DOD. So, and it took a huge lift across the department of provisioning hardware, um, getting getting folks on the right software. It's Tuesday, March 8th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Two small agencies are the big winners in the latest round of awards from the Technology Modernization Fund. The Selective Service System got $6 million to secure the personally identifiable information of registrants. The Postal Regulatory Commission got $2.6 million to modernize its website and improve public participation in its mission. The intelligence community has a new permanent chief information officer. Adele Merritt is former principal deputy CIO for cyber at the Department of Energy. She joins the IC from a nonprofit called Dreamport that U.S. Cyber Command created. The deputy CIO that's been acting, Michael Washell, will stay on as deputy. You can read more on these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Military and civilian CIOs will lay out their strategies for the cloud at the Public Sector Innovation Summit. It's coming April 14th at the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is the latest federal government organization to lay out its back-to-the-office plan. Most CISA employees will report to their offices at least twice per pay period. Jeff Pons, former director of the Office of Personnel Management. Jeff, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. What do you see uh, common threads-wise among the the back-to-the-office plans that we're starting to see from organizations across the federal government as they're coming in? And uh, you mentioned before we went on the air the Office of Personnel Management's guidance last week on Back to the Office. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you, Francis, for having me again. And I think that um, we're going to have to ease into this. Uh, and OPM's put, put out some guidance on it. But uh, as I've talked to some of my uh, OMB colleagues, uh, we don't want to be that heavy handed in terms of dictating uh, going back to work. Each agency is going to have to uh, feel out where they're going to go. And I think there's going to be uh, some time that we ease back into uh, the federal workforce environment. Um, and that might look very different than three years ago. It might actually employ a lot more telework. It might actually have uh, some required days to go in as agreed upon per business unit so people can actually meet and talk with one another. But there's also this reality of saying, hey, we didn't really need to go into the office. And what is GSA going to do with all the all the real estate and buildings? And do we need to reconfigure those to have more meeting space? So the, the name of the game right now is actually to listen to the people, let the let their schedules and preferences kind of boil up 
and then make some decisions uh, organization to organization, agency to agency, because not one organization is going to be dealing with this the same way. And I think uh, OMB and OPM are doing the right thing, which is uh, making sure that they can provide guidance, uh, but not dictate a, a mandatory way of coming back. And I know that the, within their guidance, it's uh, the agency heads can be uh, directive um, and plan that, that culture out. But I think uh, it's headed in the right direction and it's going to take some time. We need patience uh, in adjusting back to the new reality of what work will look like. Jeff, I want to take you back to your Chico days rather than to your OPM director days for this question. Mm -hmm. When you're sitting at a table with your agency's chief financial officer and your agency's chief information officer and your agency's deputy secretary and uh, your agency's acquisition uh, leader, what's that conversation revolve around and what questions should those people be asking you about how they will make the policy for their organizations or how they will pass down policy to the managers at the employee level who will be implementing that policy? Yeah, so there, uh, I was a Chico at the U.S. Department of Energy. It's uh, like most agencies, we claim that we're unique, uh, has 13,000 uh, employees, but manages over 130,000 contractors, the National Laboratories, uh, uh, non-nuclear uh, proliferation with the National Nuclear Security Administration. So that complex is as diverse as possible. You have environmental cleanup to managing the, uh, the, the science and technology for the nation. Um, I, when I sat down with uh, our management team, uh, we dealt with it as a team. Uh, we had a wonderful, wonderful secretary. I was blessed to have him as my uh, agency head, Sam Bodman, the late Sam Bodman. And he, he knew how to manage. And it was not just like a general. He was like a marshal coming in. He demanded that respect uh, and um, we gave it to him. He wanted us to make sure that we work together as a team, always made the tough choices. And um, what the conversations right now I would have with our CFO, our CIO, and our acquisition or our organization is, is prepare for doing things a little bit differently. It's not going to be the same type of infrastructure or decision-making or even um, the patterned uh, budget processes that we have because our needs are going to be different for our workforce. And our workforce, um, although you know many of the places within DOE require people to be there, because they're facilities that we operate, uh, it's going to be uh, easing into it and having you know, offices that are not facilities uh, come back in some fashion and maybe have more flexible place, but the facilities themselves, how do you prepare your workforce to go back to those facilities in full capacity? And some of these things are the most sensitive things in the whole entire government. And, uh, you know, that there is a need for a, a national security posture within the U.S. Department of Energy. And uh, we take that job very seriously as management of one of the uh, most uh, sophisticated organizations in the whole entire government. All right. I'm going to sit you down at another table now, Jeff. And it's just you and me and I'm a manager, whatever level you want to decide in the federal government, Jeff. And I'm I'm 
having an issue, I'm, I'm worried about implementing whatever policy is I have to implement with employees who may not like it, who, yeah. employees who may uh, be very happy and very productive, to be fair, with the maximum telework posture that we've had for the last going on three years. Um, what does that look like? And what advice do you give to that person about the change management, the cultural issue that has to change? Because I imagine that's maybe more significant than the tactical stuff. Yeah, in government, uh, we tend to make uh, policy and law first before we actually uh, find out what everybody's doing and where everybody should go. So I always do the analogy of like uh, IT. IT has specifications, which is what everybody's doing. And then we go towards standards, which is where everybody should be going. And then from there, you get good policy making and laws that can emanate from that kind of conversation. My number one advice to uh, all managers is actually to listen to your people, bring them along the ride for, for where we're going and listen to how they want to work and see whether or not that fits in with the management of the organization and how you can accommodate some of their ways of working. And I think getting to that type of conversation and still making decisions as responsible managers, that's your right, um, it will be a lot easier for people to return to the work environment when people have uh, starved themselves for you know, manager, uh, supervisor, customer interactions all across our whole entire country. And I think the best thing that we can do right now is to listen to how people are are doing, how they're performing at their current work environments, and how we're going to evolve over time as a team. And I think there's uh, sometimes we emphasize too much individual performance versus team and group performance. And you as a manager would probably know best as to know how to work with your team and who needs what, uh, because it's always uh, personalization versus uh, just a, a, a rote response of saying, hey, somebody is, is making me do this. Nobody ever wants to work in an environment like that. And uh, we need to value our employees and treat them like the partners they are in business. Jeff Pond, uh, it's great to talk to you again. Terrific advice. Thanks for coming on the program today. My pleasure. You can read more about agency back to the office plans in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming tomorrow, a look at government IT modernization from Capitol Hill. Congressman Jerry Connolly is here. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Budget passback guidance from the Office of Management and Budget for fiscal 2023 includes a request of more than $770 billion for the Defense Department, according to Reuters. Two big factors, though, may change that number when Congress gets to the 23 budget. Todd Harrison's director of the Aerospace Security Project and senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Todd, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Those two factors, obviously, are Ukraine and inflation. Which of those mm -hmm. do you think has the most potential to impact that top line number and the big pieces underneath the top line? Welcome, Todd. Hey, th thanks, Francis. Good to be back. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Those are the big factors we'll have to watch all throughout the new budget season for the FY23 request. Um, you know, I, I think 
Which one is going to matter the most really uh, depends on how the conflict in Ukraine goes. Uh, if we see a prolonged conflict uh, where there's more of a stalemate and it turns into a kind of a broad insurgency in Ukraine uh, against Russian forces, then we're going to see a higher demand for U.S. presence in Europe. And we're going to see Congress, um, you know, looking more carefully at how, you know, U.S. Uh, forces are postured in Europe. Uh, and that's going to drive the budget higher. Uh, it also, of course, depends on how does inflation uh, continue. Now we're seeing, you know, uh, we should expect short-term uh, spikes in inflation, even above, you know, how high it's already been because of energy costs. But what I'm going to be looking at is core inflation, and you know, what are people projecting that core inflation is going to be for the rest of this year and also into FY23? Uh, you know, the, the $773 billion figure that you cited uh, in the opening, that really would just be keeping up with inflation, um, you know, given where FY22 uh, is likely to end up and where we think inflation is likely to be in FY23. Um, so I, I think we're going to see Congress, you know, watching these two factors very closely throughout the budget season. And it is almost certain Congress is going to add more to this request than uh, is there already. Is the compression that we could potentially see because of inflation, Todd, the same scenario maybe figured differently as we've seen in the past? Because what we've seen in the past within the last well, five or 10 years, and you probably can recall the exact numbers, is we've seen inflation almost nothing, but we've seen flat to sometimes declining defense budgets in a couple of those years. And I wonder if that compression, if, if the raw buying power going down slightly looks the same on the back end in the scenario that you just laid out as it has in the past. Yeah, so I, I guess this scenario there would be less. I'm just going to throw out a number, for sure. example. Let's see. We see, you know, 7% inflation uh, for FY23. That's not entirely out of the realm of possibility, um, but you only see 6% growth in the defense budget. Uh, then, yeah, you are you are compressing that. Now, on the, the flip side, uh, you may have, you know, 8% growth in the defense budget with a 7% rate of inflation. But where does that extra percent go? Uh, does it get eaten up by personnel costs? Does it get eaten up by higher operating costs from older equipment, from higher fuel costs, right? So that's another way that the purchasing power of the department gets eroded over time. You know, even if it is a high inflation environment, even if you are seeing, you know, relatively large increases year over year in the budget. And the bottom line that I've seen in the past, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that the priorities first are for the costs that the department's already incurring, personnel costs right. um, for the increases there and for maintaining and continuing the programs and products stuff that they already have. You have to maintain the things that you have, and that means the squeeze is usually on modernization efforts. Am I thinking about this the right way, and will you yeah. expect that to play out the same way that it has in the past? Yeah, no, that's ex exactly right, that you've got these must-pay bills. You've got to take care of the troops that you have uh, and the equipment you have. I think, actually, we're going to see a renewed emphasis on some of those near-term immediate costs, especially training, readiness funding, because of what's happening in Ukraine. Because now, you know, commanders, especially in UCOM, 
have got to be thinking, you know, I've got to have forces that are ready to deploy, that are ready to fight right now. Uh, I can't take any kind of a break in readiness. I can't afford that right now. And that's going to be that demand pressure is going to be trickling down to the services. So those are absolutely going to be must pay bills. Uh, And, you know, what does what does get sacrificed, right? If it doesn't all add up uh, and you can't get everything that you want, um, you know, the easiest things to trim are things that we're procuring in large numbers, uh, things that are, you know, already in production where you could, you know, instead of buying 100 of something, you might buy 90 or you might buy 80, um, you know, and you, you know, say that, oh, I'll, I'll make up for that. I'll buy extra in, in future years, right? So you kick the bill down the road. The other way that you can trim things is for programs that are very early in development, you can just stretch that out another year and say, well, you know, I'm not going to go ahead and hit milestone B and, uh, you know, do a source selection this year. I'll, I'll push that until next year and I'll just study it for a little bit longer. So does this mean potentially delays for some of the core programs that the department's working on like JADC2? Because it strikes me that's, you know, that's a place where we don't have a mature product yet. And, and we're working toward it, and it's something, obviously, the department has stated as a very, very, very high priority, but it's not necessarily ready for prime time. That sounds like the kind of thing that one might try to stretch out by a year or six months or whatever you had to do to make, it, make the numbers work. Yeah. So, yes. So, we may see some of that happening in this budget request, right? We may see some of these, even some flagship programs. We may see the development timeline stretched out a bit um, so they can fit things in this request. Uh, but ultimately, it's going to be up to Congress, right? And so, Congress will be making these trade offs and deciding, you know, how, am I willing to, you know, add a little extra money or rob money from somewhere else um, to accelerate a program that, you know, Congress thinks is a higher priority um, or, you know, continue funding a program just like the department is trying to do. Uh, ultimately, it's Congress is going to have to make all those trade-offs. And that's why I think at the end of the day, Congress is not going to be mil- willing to make a lot of those trade-offs and they're just going to add more money. Um, and, you know, I, I would expect Congress adding 20, 25 billion to this request. All right. A cynic could argue, I think, very effectively that we're getting way ahead of ourselves because we're talking about FY23 and the impact potentially of inflation on it when we don't have a fiscal 22 number or budget yet for the department. And we have to think about how inflation potentially can affect that, don't we? We do. Uh, I, you know, my reading of the situation is that on the Hill, they are basically set uh, with the defense part of the FY22 appropriations. The hang up is it's all getting put together in one omnibus appropriations bill. So they got to work out all the details on the non-defense side. Um, You know, we're on a continuing resolution through Friday. So that is their deadline. They may have to pass a short-term bill, give them a few more days, but I'm confident we're at the end game now and we're very close to those appropriations being finalized. I think we're likely to see the defense number in that appropriations bill. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's 745 to 750 billion is where they end up with that. When you include the extra Ukraine money that's already been requested, I think it probably gets you closer to 750. 
Um, but you're right. You know, they got to get that final number. Unfortunately, this administration has had to put together the FY23 request without actually knowing exactly where that number is going to end up. They've had a good idea since January. Um, it's going to be somewhere in that range, but account by account, they don't have the final numbers yet. So the 23 budget um, is, is going forward with assumptions about what actually did or did not get funded in 22. Todd Harrison, God, I hope we don't have to start this shutdown countdown again. Good <laughs> Lord. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it very much. I hope so, too. <laughs> thanks, Francis. You can read more about the defense budget in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Nominations close next Friday for the best bosses in federal IT. You can recognize the CIOs, CTOs, CISOs, and other technology leaders that are driving modernization and innovation around the federal government. The list of finalists debuts March 28th, and you can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Defense Department's waiting like the rest of government on its appropriation for this fiscal year. A big part of that number will go to technology. Dr. Kelly Fletcher is the newly appointed permanent principal deputy chief information officer at the Pentagon. At FedScoop's IT Mod Talk, she tells my colleague Billy Mitchell two things she thinks about about the future fight. The first thing is um, our next adversary, they're going to be able to take advantage of our technical vulnerabilities. And that's something that wasn't true in our last war fight, which isn't to say the adversary wasn't very, very tough. Um, but it is that we know that we have some vulnerabilities and we know that our next adversaries, they know about them. They're working to take advantage of them. They absolutely aim to do so. Um, the other thing is that when we look at our next war fight, we really believe that the winner will be the, the nation that can take data, um, digest the data and make rapid decisions based on the best data available. Uh, and so that's where we really need to pivot. We need to take care of the technical vulnerabilities that we have. And that's both traditional vulnerabilities um, and also things that are sort of military specific. Uh, and then the other thing we need to do is we need to make sure that we enable AI, ML. We need to enable data getting to the right place at the right time to inform the right decision. So the three things in this domain that I'm sort of most excited about are the first thing is zero trust. And I know we've talked a lot about zero trust and it can come off as sort of a slogan. It's not a slogan right? Uh, it is how we are securing our networks for the future. This is very traditional um, CIO activities, right? As we have networks, there are DoD networks, um, there are DoD networks and systems, and we really need in our data, we really need to segment our networks. Um, we need to make sure that uh, we can get the adversary out of our networks if we need to. So zero trust reflects how we do business today. Uh, I think 20 years ago, all of my data was on my own machine. Uh, and I could, you know, it made sense to have a perimeter around me. Uh, now my data is in the cloud and it's in all different clouds. I'm accessing it in all different ways. I'm accessing it from home sometimes. And so zero trust is going to enable us to protect our network the way that we are currently architected and the way that we are operating today. The other thing I want to highlight is uh, the defense industrial base. These are so important. These are our partners. Uh, they're the folks we're relying on to make, you know, to make not only software, but also hardware in our weapon systems. Uh, frankly, the security of the Department of Defense and the security of the nation is reliant on their security as well. Uh, and this is, I think about, you know, CIOs of big corporations. They have an industrial base. They have a supply chain, right? They don't call it the defense industrial base, but they call it their supply chain. Um, we are doing a lot of things at DOD to enable our DIB partners to be successful. 
Um, that goes from, you know, sharing information. Hey, we're seeing this sharing best practices. Hey, you know, if you see this, you should do this. Uh, but then also some pretty exquisite things. Uh, so we have the NSA Cyber Collaboration Center, and they're truly collaborating because some of our partners are seeing things that we're not seeing, or maybe they're seeing it faster. Um, the other thing we're doing is we are offering tools. So do you actually need a tool to help you be successful? We can provide that. Um, some of what you're hearing right now a lot about is CMMC 2.0. This is an incredibly important initiative, and it's aimed really at all of our partners in the DIB base. So that's hundreds of thousands of companies. Uh, so we have different tools and different information depending on sort of where you sit. If you're a big company, you probably want something different than a very small company, but we wanna enable the entire defense industrial base to be successful. Uh, the third thing I wanna hit on is weapons platforms. And this is where I think we're a little bit different from an from a industry CIO. Um, we have these incredibly exquisite technologies um, that we're using to, you know, to posture to wage war. And uh, these not only, you know, they're connected to our networks in some cases, but also there's some sort of unique things. So like position, position, navigation, and timing. Uh, we need to make sure that we can put steel on target. And to do that, we need to make sure our PNT is reliable, resilient, um, and that we can use it in a war fight. So one way we're getting after that in the CIO office, partnering across OSD and with the services is the Strategic Cybersecurity Program. And that actually targets weapon systems where we look really hard at them and say, what are the technical vulnerabilities here? Even those that are really unique from like a network vulnerability. So we've got a lot of irons in the fire, but we're, we're laser focused on this. That's great. And thanks for that synopsis. And I do want to go back to one of the points you made sort of earlier in that answer about data and sort of data driving decision making on, on the battlefield. Um, and, you know, we hear a lot about JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control, and the new move to the cloud under the Joint War Fighting Cloud Capability. Advana is DOD's uh, sort of data platform uh, across its enterprise. But, um, you know, I'd love to know that there's that this has been going on for a really long time, and you know this this push to make data a, a more integral piece of battle has been something people have talked about for quite a while. So, how is today different, and what are you and your colleagues in your office sort of uh, thinking about to make this work this time? Yeah, great question. So, this is a space where there is a ton of really cool stuff happening, and I really like, uh, you know, saying honestly, DoD's talked about this for a long time. What's different? Uh, and what I would say, what is different right now is the amount of leadership attention against this incredibly important domain. Um, so as of 1 February, the chief digital and AI officer, uh, that organization has been stood up. They're at initial operating capability. Uh, Mr. John Sherman is the acting CDAO right now. Uh, and that's that's absolutely temporary. And that's why he's acting. So he's currently both the DOD CIO, the confirmed DOD CIO, and then acting in this other role. Um, someone else will be coming on board to take over that role. Um, but that's an incredibly important role. So uh, the leadership attention that it took to create this new office and this new role and to consolidate all the right functions under it, this speaks to how important this is right now uh, to my leadership in the department. Um, I see the CIO right now. We do have this sort of funny posture where we're a little bit of both, but that's very temporary. And I see our permanent role as being the closest partner with the CDIO. So we're an enabler though. So they're going to be the folks who are looking at AI solutions that are looking at ML solutions that are looking really hard at the data. Um, and what we are going to do is enable all of the tools that they create to work, which is incredibly important. 
So this gets to transport, right? And when I, when I think about transport for a long time, I always thought about like, we've got fiber in the ground. And that's, that's true. And that's really, really important. Um, but also SATCOM is really, really important. Uh, and as we look at the edge and as we look at new technologies, uh, transport is going to look a lot different than just a fiber in the ground. And that actually brings me to, as we look at, you know, spectrum and moving to 5G. So uh, this is, to me, 5G is incredibly exciting. And it's because of what it will enable from a data and AI perspective. Um, but we're very passionate about how do we get the right data to the right place at the right time. And a lot of the time, that's using uh, SATCOM. That's not using fiber in the ground. Um, and one thing, just while I have the opportunity, I do, this is one of my favorite topics, and I just love to bring it up, which is, um, so our spectrum folks are really doing a lot of really innovative and cool stuff that is going to define how we operate in the future. So I think we all know, like I know as an American, you know, consumer, I'm really excited to have 5G. I'm excited to have it on my smartphone on the weekend when I'm, you know, milling around my city. Um, and we at DoD really, really want to enable that. We really want folks here at home to be able to use 5G. Uh, and I really want to use 5G for, for our military folks. We want to provide it to them. Uh, but for all of this to work, we're going to have to move into dynamic spectrum sharing, which means that instead of, oh, I operate in a certain chunk of the spectrum and I'm always living there and I'm always in that chunk of the spectrum and it's 100% mine, we're going to have to share and we're going to have to share with industry and we're going to have to figure out how to incentivize this and we're going to have to figure out how to get the right technologies. And that's going to be critical for getting the right data to the right place. That's great. And, and sort of on a similar note, talking about providing experiences such as Spectrum and, you know, empowering uh, uh, warfighters to do new and interesting things, you know, it, there's still a lot of challenges. The DoD is the largest organization in the world, um, arguably. Uh, around provisioning IT services to people uh, across the globe. So uh, what are you doing to improve those user experiences given that challenge? Yeah, this is a great question. So the first thing is I would say, as I wanna acknowledge everything that we have done in the past couple of years. Uh, so three or four years ago, I don't think if we said, oh, 80% of the workforce is gonna be at home one day and they're gonna be working. Sure. No one would have believed that. That was, that was impossible. Um, so through Microsoft Office 365, uh, rolling that out to a lot of folks at DoD, we have really enabled you know, both new capabilities and then also telework. Uh, we are working really hard to enable folks to use their own personal devices. This is new. Uh, this is very, very new for DoD. So, and it took a huge lift across the department of provisioning hardware, um, getting, getting folks on the right software. Um, so I just, I do want to acknowledge everything that we've done. And then as soon as I do this, uh, because I'm in the IT space, people say, well, I had this problem. Of course you did for sure. And that is real. You know, I'm a user and, and sometimes things don't work. Uh, but we are very serious about getting after this. So some of the things that we're doing from the enterprise level to say like, why, why are users having challenges? Um, we are looking at, we have a lot of security and we've built up security stacks over years and years. Um, do we need everything in them? Or are we kind of larding down the network? Uh, as we move to zero trust, what can we take offline? So that's something we're very serious about getting after with DISA. Um, the other thing is that we're rolling out capabilities. Um, you know, we're sort of using IT best practices, which is we roll out a set of capabilities and then you all know you're gonna get more capabilities here in a minute. So some of the challenges we're having with teams and getting folks in who are guests, we are working on that. That is gonna be in the next round, that is gonna be improved. Uh, so 
I think we've made a lot of progress, but that isn't to say that we're in a perfect posture and we're, we're getting after it pretty seriously. So Dr. Fletcher, as we close out, I, I think something that's near and dear to my heart when I talk, have these discussions is the people behind it, making sure that there's a face to it um, and that you realize that you can't do any of this if there's not tech talent there. So I'd love to close with a question about um, how DOD is looking to bring in new digital talent uh, or use training and education to upskill the talent it already has to support some of these focuses. Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I always, I wanna start this by saying, my office and then like the IT folks in general and DOD are phenomenal. And this is something that I think when we talk about how do we recruit the best talent, I have phenomenal talent. And what I want to do is make sure that I can sustain the talent I have and that I can recruit people that are very much like the folks I have on board now. Um, so all of the work that we've done has been enabled by the excellent folks we have on board. Um, but we are doing some specific things to keep those folks on board and then also to look to, to acknowledge that careers are going to look a little bit different. Uh, in the future than they have in the past, maybe. So the first thing I want to acknowledge is uh, the DoD Cyber Workforce Strategy, which really gets after how do we very granularly describe roles? And then how do we make sure that the most important folks in the right region can be prioritized? So just, you know, making something up. If you're a systems administrator and we have a hard time keeping systems administrators in a certain region, we now can offer them enhanced um, pay, frankly, through the cyber accepted service. And that's, we can do that because we very granularly describe the work roles, which is incredibly important. We're also offering rotations. And then something else that we're doing, and I would say this is department wide when we think about the innovation workforce, is acknowledging that, you know, folks, we want folks to come into the government and then maybe go to the private sector and then maybe come back. Um, sort of the expectation that we're going to be here for 30 years. You know, I've been in the government for 10 years. I have loved it. I have, I've loved it so much. I don't think I'm going to retire out of the government. You know, maybe I will, but I don't, I don't plan to be here until I retire. Uh, and that's not because I don't love the work, but that's because I see the value in having a little bit of diversity. Um, so that's something that we're looking for across the board. Kelly Fletcher, the Principal Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Defense Department. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. If you haven't done that yet, please do that. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put it together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Congressman Jerry Conley's on tomorrow's show. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. 